Well, welcome to the uh, Total Recall podcast, Mr. Hasty and Mr. Lake. It's great to have you. Hello. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's, it's, it's our pleasure. Um, just for everybody listening, um, obviously, we, we want to talk about startups, the ecosystem of tech and how it's changing, the, you know, the nuances of being involved in a startup and building a startup and leading a startup of which you both have experience. Um, now, just to kind of give a, a brief introduction, whether you want me to do that, guys, or whether you want to do that yourself, a little quick who I am type thing. You go for it. Yeah. So um, obviously, Luke Hasty is uh, the co-founder of a company called Newaware, who are a tech consultancy and distribution organization uh, supporting companies like Docker, for example, um, and a lot of cloud native technologies that are propping up a lot of modern infrastructures um, that you see. Uh, well, in fact, you probably don't see, but you don't even know they exist, but they're you know, underpinning our, uh, our tech revolution. And so Luke has built that company from scratch uh, some seven years ago now, is it Luke? Six, six years. Six years. It, was, it was longer, um, but yeah, six yeah, years. Very successfully and has recently gone through a, um, an M&A himself and, and sold the organization. Um, I'm so it'd be great to pick your brains on that. Um, so that's Luke and Brian Lake. Um, obviously a man who might not need much introduction to a lot of my audience in America, um, built and, and being part of the sale of an acquisition of a company called Twistlock into Palo Alto. You know, years and years of experience of starting and building um, very cool technology companies with little to no branding at the time of, of your involvement to, uh, you know, to something that is a bit of a behemoth and one of the market leaders um, as what um, you know, Prisma Cloud now is. Um, so again, some great experiences that we can draw from Mr. Lake and, and hopefully you know, educate me as a startup founder myself in my own third year, obviously in a different um, arena. Um, but obviously everybody listening is on that journey themselves, whether it's a stealth founder looking for their first round of seed funding or a round, um, whether it's a VP of sales, whether it's a CRO or somebody that's just trying to learn, you know, what to expect or what perhaps they could do differently um, in what is probably going to be a, a quite a challenging year ahead. I'm sure you both agree. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much for having us. Um, we're, we're quite a close-knit group. Uh, Will and Brian and I have all worked together in some sort of uh, context for, for quite a while. It's, it's really cool to be here and talking about this. And yeah, happy to share any any sort of experiences that, that, I've, that I've had. My, my background is very different to Brian's. You know, he, he was a client, customer of mine for, for a long time. And Hopefully, it will be again as as the, the market the market goes, and I think it's going to be hopefully interesting to talk about because uh, our careers, the, my company ultimately, we're all sort of intertwined really in you know working with people and getting things done at the right time and the opportunities aligning and you know I don't want my insight to be that you need a lot of things to go your way to be successful, but um, the whole adage of creating your own luck is really something that I would uh, I would attest to, and, and seizing opportunities that that you get given, spotting the real ones, and really making the most of it, um, knowing when you're onto a good thing, and uh, and capitalizing. You know, so so yeah, I think from from my perspective, happy to happen to share any sort of experience that I've had over the the different phases as as we've we've grown and new aware from how we've had to adapt what we do to the market and to the clients that we have through to now being owned by a public company, um, multi-billion dollar organization and, and how we, we plan to take that forward. So 
so yeah, thanks for having me and um, happy to, to, to wax lyrical if you need me to. I think it's um, it's an interesting starting point for you to to talk about look. And I think, Brian, a question I'll, I'll throw over the fence to you. Um, obviously, being golf fans, as I know you both are, <laughs> Arnold Palmer that said, the, the harder that I try, I think it was, the luckier that I get. Um, so with startup in mind, um, where do you start to apply yourself first to expose yourself to look or something that might, you know, turn out in your favor? What, what, what's your first day one, week one? Right. I'm in my startup. I'm, I'm kind of got a technology to take to market. Uh, nobody knows me. Where do I start? Yeah, well, it's a it's a good question. I, I think in, in Luke kind of touched on a little bit. Obviously, our, our experience together is intertwined in a lot of different ways as both teammates and customer and on both sides of the equation. Um, I think the when you're starting to dig in, I think one thing that's unique, you, you think about kind of sales, just the, the area that I'm in. You know, what kind of sales leader do you start with? How, how, how do you get started? You know, there's leaders that don't sell and there's sellers that don't lead. And it kind of puts you in, in a tough spot to begin with of where to get started with. And I've talked to a lot of people about, well, do you start with a seller? Do you start with a leader and the whole thing? I think what makes um, maybe my experience a little bit unique is having worked as starting as an SDR and, and then being an inside rep was an overlay and being a sales specialist and being a field rep and leading a field team and, and being a sales leader of an inside team and being a sales leader of a field team. And, and then, you know, and then a VP of sales, like in that, in that order um, and having all the experiences is really your willingness to roll up your sleeves and figure out how things work how things don't work. And I mean, really the interaction between the company and the prospects of the company and the partners of the company and the customers and, and, and all that thing. And I've just found that it's not super common to have your leaders be willing to be roll up their sleeves all the way to doing a lot of the, the hands-on work. And I think it's in the process and my experience with Luke and him building his company at the same time we were building our company um, he was doing it and I was doing it. And there's not a lot of, there's a lot of learning that happens of, you know, we had some assumptions, we had some opinions and, you know, we, we tried them and, and we figured out what really worked and what really didn't without any feedback loop that, that went through other people or other channels. And that allowed us to then figure out how to get more people to do it and what works and what doesn't work before you start scaling it. Okay. And Luke, how important do you think it was to have Brian at that point in time to, to bounce ideas off and to help you build the plane, which sounds like it was on the runway at that point in time? Because I, I hear a lot of founders, and I've spoken to a lot of founders who suggest it can be quite a lonely place um, at times to be kind of on your own, trying to steer the ship, build the ship, steady the ship, direct the ship. Um, how important was it having Brian to kind of you know, go through that journey together with you? Yeah, and I would absolutely attest that doing it on your own, and uh, I, I can't imagine it, uh, doing it on my own. And, and Brian is one of the key people. I think what one of the, the real keys to the success of Newware is that I, I have a co-founder who um, is the sort of yin, yin to my yang. Like we're actually very, very different people in how we go about doing things, but usually have very, very aligned end goals and objectives and so I think for me when 
in the early stages of Newell, I was focused ultimately on sales, you know, going out and taking the product from the client, you know, the, the, which ultimately was Brian's company, selling it to end users across Europe. I was able to focus 100% on doing that and figuring out how to make that a success with Brian. And then my co-founders are here was, was basically handling everything else. Um, and that, that really, I think, was a bit of a differentiator for us as a business, which allowed us to sort of weather some of the harder times and reassure each other that we were not in this on your own. And, you know, I know that, that you will, you're doing this on your own and it, it can be lonely and question your own motivations because you're the only person you can do it with. Um, but from, from a success standpoint and building Newware and where we started, ultimately we were really a, a one client company. You know, Twistlock was at the time, um, the majority of our revenue and my majority of my time was honing and perfecting that sales process. Um, I think we enjoyed I would even use the word enjoyed quite a competitive relationship with another vendor in the space, which um, added a little bit of spice and um, just interest to, to the process. But um, Brian, Brian was more of a sort of mentor to me. So when we started the company, when we started at Newware, we left from the same company. Brian was running an entire sales team and I was a salesperson. So he was a two or three levels above me in the business. So not only was I learning how to build a company and go through that process, but I'd never really done serious enterprise end user sales before. And so uh, there are a lot of things that I needed to learn. And um, The balance that you get of that inexperience when it's your own company is that you, you sort of approach it with a bit of a fanatical sort of, if I think back and the amount of work that went into those hours and, and days, um, you'd struggle to get anyone to do it voluntarily or for a salary, right? That's part of the part and parcel when it's your own money. Um, but no, I think I still use things that Brian's taught me today on, and interestingly, a lot of things that are appropriate for managing a sales cycle are the same for whether you're hiring or interviewing a person, whether you are building or structuring a sales team, like clarity of communication, don't duplicate effort, don't create a problem for yourself that you don't need to create. Um, if the contract process is, uh, the more complex it is, then the more difficult the customer is gonna be, you know, that, that applies for when you're interviewing people as well. You know, these are all things that, that uh, I learned uh, from Brian that I still, I still use today. And um, it's just good business sense, right? And, I think the challenge for startup founder typically in our space is that they are usually product led people. They're usually engineers or technical people or developers or someone that's very, very well versed in building products in, in their space. And that taking it to market is a huge and complex problem that you may maybe don't appreciate. And uh, I think that's going to Brian's point about what kind of person do you lean on? Who do you sort of look to for advice and for mentorship? It's, it can be easy to confuse a salesperson with a salesperson, but they could be from the same industry, very, very different skill sets. And that's something which um, I feel is something that needs to be navigated. And we've seen 
mistakes be made by aligning the wrong sales process for your type of product at the stage you are at as a vendor. Um, because that truly is, if you're trying to sell, do enterprise deals, million dollar deals when you're a 30 person company, very, very rarely is that going to work. But I, you know, Brian's got more experience on that than me. But that sort of product to process fit is uh, is really key in getting getting accurate. And do you think do you think like Brian, there is perhaps a cookie cutter approach that can be taken to each startup, or is each startup unique in its own right in how you get it to market? Is there always like a a common denominator in right? This is what we do first. This is how we create a customer avatar. This is how we get in touch with them. Or is it a case of, right, let's get our head under the bonnet. Let's see what the product is. Let's build it from there. How, how does it typically work? Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a cookie cutter guy, as you might, you might suspect. The, uh, I've had a couple of sayings that Luke will, will appreciate. One is one size fits none, which I took from uh, one part of my career where um, it, the, you certainly are trying to figure out, and Luke mentioned this, the nuance, and there's a lot of nuance, you know, of selling and, and going to market and, you know, what your product is and who your competitors are and, and where you sell it and how you license it and who the customer is and what kind of companies those are and what industries are. I mean, there's a lot of details that go in there. And so you'd say, I think when people really struggle is one, they don't roll up their sleeves and really understand what's working and what's not. Like they don't get under in it and hear it directly from somebody in the equation. They hear it through somebody. That's that's part of it. But then also they apply. There's nothing wrong with, you know, the sales cycle we had at Microsoft, you know, and the go-to-market, we had 150 sales reps covering 111 accounts. Like that's, there's nothing wrong with that strategy and that kind of resourcing allocation for the business that we had. Now, if you applied that to you know, what we did at a company with 50 people, it's, it's, it's not going to work in the exact same way. And the same thing, the way Oracle went to business and the way, you know, Tripwire in the early days went to business and the, before we switched to uh, subscriptions and to SaaS and those things and the way, you know, Twistlock went to business, they, they all have, there's some commonalities, but you're really trying to understand who you're selling to, what problem you're solving, what options customers have, and then, understand what works and then provide a frictionless process to work with internally and with your customers to make it easy to, to support them. And um, I say friction a lot now, um, you know, because you're trying to remove that, whether the friction is internally, how, how you work with between the customer or with the channels you work with, and you're just trying to remove any of the things that, would get in the way of seamlessly and frictionlessly working with your prospects and customers to ensure that the problem they're solving is is they're getting value from and they they really enjoy working with you. And so it, there's a lot of little details. And so anytime someone's like, do you apply? It's like, well, you apply things that you've learned along the way. You apply, you, you have some general kind of, kind of, points that you're trying to navigate towards, but you got to be open to the data giving you a different kind of answer and then therefore go in a little bit different direction. And what, what's your opinion on, on like the changing landscape now of, of the one part of that process in getting in front of the customers? Because 
you know, I, I talk to a lot of people, as I'm sure you guys do, in different um, vertical markets selling different things. And a lot of people are saying now that the market is changing in how people are sold to and how people are buying. You know, some people are, are adopting a, a different approach uh, in, you know, be it PLG or be it, um, you know, a top-down selling methodology. Some people, they, you know, they are digital sellers. How would you coach and teach now salespeople, question to both of you, um, for today's technology market, um, if at all differently to what you might have done pre-COVID? Yeah, I'm not sure necessarily that COVID, I mean, uh, may have accelerated some things that have already happened, may have delayed some things that have already happened, may have evolved some things. I mean, I think the landscape on how um, customers and companies work together has been evolving since, you know, uh, it's my, my whole career, you know, that in 20 years ago when we were selling software, they, you know, we, we shipped it. And, you know, we had to get credit checks for people because we were shipping physical software to people. And we had to, we were worried about FOB origin versus FOB destination, which is a really hardware kind of mentality that, that people don't even know exists, dating myself a little bit on this one. But you're saying like the models have evolved the way, you know, subscriptions and, and SaaS and versus perpetual. And, you know, in the early days, customers or prospects called and spoke to sales reps to get information about the market, to get information about the product, to get information about the problem that it solves, because there wasn't a lot of information available to them in the web, in the way it works today, um, where that evolved to where customers or prospects had a lot of information, you know, from analysts and from the web and from a lot of different areas. And so they came with a different set of kind of expectation needs and problems and kind of things that they were working with. And so I think that continues to evolve. I think the product-led PLG, as you, as you mentioned, is very different. I, and again, this is where, you know, blindly applying or cookie cutter, like, you know, um, mentality to any business. And I wouldn't say sales is unique in that way. I just think to any business, you'd say like, well, that's the way we did it 15 years ago. And we're doing it exactly today. You say, like, really? That's that's surprising. You know that that you would think. Now there are elements from twenty years ago as part of the sales process of work selling a technical product to technical users at the enterprise that is very similar today that I that I did twenty years ago. And there are things that are very different from people process tooling, information marketing, all the go to market kind of functions. And so, you know, I, I think the the key is to really you know, and this is where you know, sales isn't magic. It's a, it's about people process. It's about activity. It's about progress. It's about results. It's about understanding who you're selling to, what value you're providing, what options they have uh, to solve that problem and how you fit in and then aligning the, the resources you have to the process, including your partner, which, you know, that's where Luke and I spend a lot of time together to to the way they're going to buy and who's buying. And so you'd say, well, depending on what that is, like I may give you a very different answer than, than something else. And so, but if you don't really understand that, and I think that's the rolling your, your sleeves up and really understanding who you're selling to, what options they have, what would they be replacing? You know, who do they buy through, uh, you know, the kind of thing that is, that is really important. And like, again, there's little nuanced things have changed. I think, People are more skeptical than ever. They have more information than ever. Um, they have more options than ever. Um, their their tolerance for 
lack of time to value is less. I mean, I think there, there are elements in there, but there are other parts that ultimately, you know, they're trying to solve a problem for their business and they're trying to evaluate options and you're trying to help them understand how you could be the best option based on what you do and how you do it. Yeah. And I think like, Luke, I know obviously you speak to a lot of different salespeople from a lot of different organizations. And I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a different industry to you guys, be it recruitment, um, sales, albeit still, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of part of a, a dying breed of people who actually enjoy selling over the phone and just phoning somebody and selling them my services. Um, Luke, what, what's your kind of view now with the market as it is in terms of do people still do that? Do people still cold call into, you know, CISOs or heads of tech or, you know, heads of engineering departments? Or is it more of a digital sale now where you're selling with your fingertips? What, what's your kind of view? Uh, I think there's a, there's, there's a case for everything still. Um, I think as, as Brian's saying, that, you know, one thing that we saw with Twistlock and the key to their success, I think, is that they had an extremely clear problem that they solved. So um, if you've got that right and you can identify people that have got that problem, you can call them up and they'll be willing to have a, a conversation with you. I think um, the challenge in today's market is that 20 years ago when you were selling IT, the number of providers that you could get your IT from and the types of technologies that were available and the types of things that you were trying to do with those technologies were vastly simpler than they are today. The average level of knowledge, the kind of person that you need to engage with, their role within the business is likely much more technical. So unless you are very well equipped when you make that call, to be able to connect with that person, be able to talk with credibility to that person, to be able to identify that you know they have the particular problem and your product is specifically designed to solve that problem, you're unlikely to differentiate yourself from the other five products that claim that they can do that, or you're unlikely to differentiate yourself and connect with someone who is a solutions architect or a development team lead if you don't really know what it is that they do every day. So, so yes, I, I think that um, whether it's digital selling or whether it is calling people up or sending emails or, or whatever, the, the, the real true key success that, that we see is that salespeople, sales reps, the, the best process, if you can get it to that, is that they have a consistent source of leads to call. And the way that you get that is by building a very, very solid problem to base your marketing around. And that's the key to getting that right is, is really going to trickle down the rest of the funnel, right? It's top of funnel stuff is marketing rather than sales. So I think if you've got that right and you can identify who your customer is, and like Brian says, you know who to call and what to say, then yeah, absolutely. Where we see the, the types of, challenges are when people just hire 20 BDRs say get on the phones all right yeah they're not going to they're not going to succeed you know typically they again we have uh, a lot of Brian and I talk about some of the strange industry trends and sales fallacies that you see that people tend to keep believing um the idea that, that the SDRs and, and business development people are junior people 
right? They typically are. It's, this, it's where you start in sales. Got arguably one of the hardest jobs to do. Admittedly, an enterprise account manager at Microsoft, yeah, that's an extremely difficult job, but getting, getting cold approaches correct and being able to connect and speak credibly with people that are technical buyers in a landscape which is extremely complicated, then unless that's absolutely nailed on, it's going to be hard. Yeah. And, and I think like from my experience in sales and building a recruitment company from scratch in a pandemic um, was pretty tough to convince people to, to buy into it. And if I think back to when I did the first startup, uh, when I, I started calling into the CEOs of Israeli startups who had never been cold called by an English recruiter ever, the one thing that I learned the most was how you respond to intense questioning when your back's against the wall. And I think it touches on both of your points around your knowledge, like you know how much knowledge you have over your own personal, what you bring to the table, plus the product, or in my case, a service that you bring to the table. Once you're pressed hard and you're like, oh, yeah, bah, 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 it needs to like, like you said earlier, like wax lyrical as to exactly what that product does or what that service does and what I do as part of that process to bring it to life. And I think it plays nicely into what you're both saying, a very similar narrative around know as much as you can around the problem you're solving, why that problem exists, who your targets are that are having that problem and the USBs that you as an individual and as a business can take to solve that problem. Because um, I think, like you say, you know, there's a, there's a thousand silver bullets every day that are promoting the same um, you know, issue that they can solve. But I think the people that stand out are the people that learn the most about what they can bring to the table and the people who wing it, they might have a good quarter here and there, but typically they're never going to be the top 1% of, um, you know, fee earners. Um, so I guess from what I'm taking from you both there, that would be advice to people now building a company, selling products would be to learn as much as possible about a very kind of specific area. I'd say so. Uh, I mean, um, typically if, as a founder, you're going to know that, right? You're going to know your space. If you've created a product, you're going to, you're going to understand that. I think that there is um, the sales part of the problem that you need to learn, right? Like a Brian says, how, why, how do people buy it? What are the issues that they face with their current tooling that solves that problem? Be better at usability rather than, you don't necessarily technically have to even have all the feature functionality of something you're replacing, but if you're easier to do business with, people may buy it. And that, that, that stuff that you have to go and learn about the market. And yeah. Yeah. That, that's the stuff that's sort of the missing, the missing piece. You, know, it's, you can think up a great technological solution on paper, but until you figure out the realities of how people use that technology and what it would fit into and why and how they would buy it and whether it's got a particular budget category assigned to it or whether you have to create budget from somewhere that doesn't exist, all of these are things that can, can lead into you being successful or not. Brian, I don't know if you'd agree. Yeah, no, no, I do. I mean, I, I think this is the, um, and then applying that to the go-to-market. Like you'd say, if you if you understand those dynamics of who you're selling, like when, who you're competing with and um, how they buy and where they buy and where they're located. And then you can figure out, you know, what is the right combination of kind of people in your go-to-market and getting them to support that in a consistent way. And it sounds really easy. And I'll tell you like, I, and again, I get, 
um, I would say over the course of my career, picked on at times about whatever the kind of the go-to-market that I'm running at the time is like, that's what I do. And you'd say like, you know, well, that, it's it's interesting because you'd say, you know, at, uh, at Microsoft, I had five accounts, you know, at one point um, and managed a team of sales specialists at Oracle. I was a field rep, you know, I mean, I had a different in any one of the models um, was appropriate for the problem we were solving for the kind of companies we were working with versus the people we were competing with. Um, and so applying something from one area just to another area without understanding that the odds of getting it right um, are, are really low and the odds that it wouldn't, you know, you're not spending a lot more money than you may need to or throwing a lot of resources. So, you know, Luke gave the example of just hiring 20 SDRs and you can just hire 20 field reps and you say, well, that might be the answer. It, it, it absolutely might not be the answer. Like, I, I'm not sure um, until you understand kind of, again, you know, who you're working with, what their options are, um, what problem you're solving and the details and how to support the go-to-market, like you don't necessarily, and it kind of evolves over time. You say with unlimited time and unlimited resources, like, could you just, could, would anything work? And it's like, well, probably. Um, but if you say, I'm going to try to put together a go-to-market to execute as an organization, as a team, to support our customers and to support our partners and to, and to really do this, like, you really need to understand the problem you're solving and who you're solving for and who you're working with to be able to do that with any kind of probability of being successful. And, and it goes, and again, not like just to, to, to plug the, you know, working with you on that, but one of those elements is your your channel kind of go-to-market partner, which obviously Luke and I figured some of these things out. I remember us being on a train to Paris and had a, a at that point had like a, a very different idea of where we were and where we were going to go that kind of evolved into it over time. But at the time, it didn't seem that way. And the same goes with like your, your kind of your recruiting partners, like, you know, the people that you bring into your organization to do this, like you understand the problem. And you understand how you're doing it and you understand kind of in your building your go-to-market uh, around it including you know maybe a distribution partner in, in europe for example to support the way the customers buy in a specific region is bringing in people that are on that team that fit into that equation to support that as well and so it, it's all of those that make it kind of work as a as a, a an organization um that successfully supports your customers and i think that, that brings us Sorry, is, um, is this uh, this balance and something that I've had to sort of figure out? And again, good that I've got a co-founder who's sort of the opposite end of this. Is that that perfectionist versus pragmatist balance? And something that I always find very interesting is I've I've spoken to people at, at software companies that say, "Oh, we don't want to do deals like that," or "No, that's not the kind of customer that we want to focus on." The one thing that Brian and I did is. You may have this idea as a found a lot of founders I've worked with very data driven, right? They have an idea of how much things cost to build a product and to take to go to market, what an ideal size should be, what an ideal customer should be. And um, if you get hung up on how you think things should work, you're going to leave money on the table. And the chances are that you don't perfectly know how things should go, right? And I remember that in our first year working together, we did some, some deals to win against a competition, which a lot of CEOs probably would turn around and say, you're crazy, or why are we giving this much discount away? Or like we're restructuring the licensing. And 
And fundamentally, it was it was Brian saying, OK, well, this is what the customer needs in order to, to get the, the deal over the line. And yes, it's not the perfect description of how it might have been you know, in, in the mind of the company. But I know for a fact that some of those customers are still paying for the software five years later um, and at significant sizes and uh, the organization has, has made their money back. So one thing that I would, I would say is that you can have this perfectionist idea of how you want to go to market and what a deal looks like and, and all that sort of stuff. But in reality, customers do things differently. You need to, what I still preach to our customers and our clients is you should do deals wherever you can, really, but especially in your first year. Um, don't let company investment or what is communicated to the board or any of this sort of stuff guide and drive your sales strategy it should come from what the customer is telling you and it should come from the competitive landscape and it should come from ultimately doing whatever you need to win and then going backwards not deciding how you're going to win and then taking that to market right okay and touching on the point of like when you start to then scale that um and a point that brian touched on in terms of bringing people into the business now i know people I've known you both a fair amount of time now. I've known people that have worked for you in your businesses, in your teams. Um, and one thing that I, I could say is, is quite common uh, from individuals that I know in your teams is that you, you harness a very good culture within the business. Um, so what would you say um, is your kind of, your culture? You know, what makes you successful, um, Brian? Because uh, obviously you've built some teams, you've, you've built some businesses now that have gone through very successful market events. What's the ingredient to, you know, to, to your success as a, as a business leader, as a sales leader, as, as you know, your, your sprinkle of something special into that business? Well, I'll start a little bit. Um, the one that the company is really shaped in the image of the founders. And that honestly, from a small company to like, the difference between Microsoft and Oracle. Like if you just look at the founders and like look at how they are, the company really culture is shaped in that. So it, you're just a part of that. And like, uh, not that it's not important, but it, you're a part of, of the overall way the company does things. Um, from within the part that, that you're responsible for, and in my case on the sales part, um, you know, one, we get back to the exact same things, like like always, like really understanding what you're doing and how you're doing it and why you're doing it and being willing to roll up your sleeves and do it either personally or help someone new learn how to do all those things or support someone who's doing all those things or, um, you know, get involved with, with them to, to ensure that they're successful. Like you've got to prove that to, to them. You've got to earn that from them, you know, everybody in the organization. And so I think the culture starts with, you know, my willingness to, to do those things within the sales team, which is part of the overall, mm -hmm. um, and then hiring people that are part of it. And, you know, the, the longer I go, the more you end up in some kind of sports or coaching analogy where, you know, where you start it as a salesperson, what you end up is a teacher or a coach for most of it. But a teacher or coach, again, a lot of things like, is the teacher and coach going to get into the details and like of the play and show them like be willing to do that and be willing to fail with them and be willing to you know do that and you say well yeah the teachers who really had a vested interest in you did or the coaches who did but do all it's like well maybe not and so 
you know, if you're if you're willing to do it and you're willing to learn and you're willing to then hire and, and train and, and support and you know the whole thing. I, I joke a lot of times with our, our team that you know if, if they're successful, they get all the credit. If they fail, I get all the blame. So if you want to know how vested I am in their ability to be successful, it, it's everything, you know, mm-hmm. from from my standpoint. And so, you know, and, and that doesn't mean certainly there aren't, you know, there aren't challenges in keeping everybody through transitions moving in the same direction. I think it's a a constantly evolving thing of what you're doing and how you're doing it. But I think, you know, I, I would say Luke has probably seen this more than than most. You say you're you're not always going to agree, but with you know what I do and how I do it. But I think they, you know, the team would understand that I'm doing it ultimately not for me, but for us in, to be successful. And they may not always appreciate that at the time, but I think later um, they do when they know where I'm coming from. So how important is it then? Um in terms of the actual hiring itself, you know, what have you learned over the course of time that um, you've put into your recruitment processes now that give you the right kind of people that can fit into a, a startup, a high, a high paced, you know, quite ambiguous environment, perhaps at times as what a startup can be, you know, do you have a particular way that you assess individuals? Well, I mean, I think you're going to, you, again, you know, this, Luke will tell you, the, you're going to hear like a lot of the, like, I just keep coming back to similar themes where the exact same things. But, you know, when we talk about the people, I think the same thing you talked about with selling, where people make a lot of mistakes or get in trouble is the same way they do with, with hiring. You know, if you say, well, you know, can you describe, you know, who, who it is that you're looking for to bring into the organization? And you don't, like, it's a cookie cutter, like, kind of answer versus, saying you really understand what you're doing and how you're doing it and why you're doing it and the kind of people you would need and the skills they would need to have to be able to be successful doing it. Um, And so then you'd say like the conversation I would have with you when you asked me like a bunch of questions as you do, which makes you good at what you do about what you're looking for, um, then you can answer them because you've you've rolled your sleeves up and you, you really understand that. And the same would go with Luke. Like, what kind of partners do you need? And what you'd say, well, to, you know, you have. I like a lot of specific things that you need to understand before you answer that question. Um, but then, you know, you certainly with experience of figuring out, you know, what are common characteristics of people that make good teammates? What are common characteristics of people that are highly successful? Um, what are common characteristics of people that are are, are difficult or, or struggle? If you say ultimately you're trying to bring in people that you're going to support and invest massively in to help them be successful, and that's really what's important, then you know it's it's a it, you know the hiring is a really really important part of of the equation, and so. You know, we found there's some things that you find along the way that's consistent. And, and and again, we found, you know, that doesn't, the cookie cutter, which I, you know, obviously don't subscribe to from the sales go-to-market or, or the hiring, you know, some of the, the best people that I've, that I've hired, you know, uh, some have been recruiters in the past, it turns out, you know, some of them have been sold steel. Well, also seems like an odd path, um, paint. Like, I mean, I've, I've had a bunch of different people that have done different things, the characteristics and the support structure were the combination of put them in a position for them to be successful doing what they do. And I, I think, you know, just like the sales process, like ultimately the people are the most important thing. And so you, you yeah. got to get that right. 
And I think, Luke, if I, if I think and look at your organization and some of the hires that you've made um, in a very competitive market, um, you know, taking people out of manufacturers, out of vendors is a very challenging thing to do uh, from your perspective, but you've done it and you've done it well. You've hired very well. What, what do you think has been the ingredient to your success in bringing some of the talented people into newer ways you have? Yeah, um, it's interesting. Obviously, we're, we're in a slightly different market dynamic than, say, you know, when Brian usually is, we're on the we're on the the twenty percent margin side of the deal, where you know the the manufacturers on the eighty percent margin side of the deal, and we we didn't have the VC funding and all the sorts of things that you get as a vendor, which gives you different problems than um, you know. It's usually he needs to hire many more people faster than we do, uh, but we have less money to hire. But we you know the, the time pressure is not quite the same for us. Um, I think for it goes back to, to culture and culture and characteristics and who you hire are all, all really the, the same thing. And I would suggest, you know, as a, as a company, a bootstrap startup, or if we didn't have any funding or anything like that, you know, setting out like an ideal company culture and then going from there isn't what we did. You know, it's, you do whatever you can to survive as a business until you get to a size where people start knocking on the door saying, we should write this stuff down. Um, and then it becomes a little bit more obvious on how you how you actually hire. And if I look back, it, it, we made the same correct hiring decisions sort of accidentally. And a lot of that is due to the culture and the personality and the characteristics of, of the founders, like Brian said, you know, IB and one. And really the what, what you're trying to do and the culture you're trying to build is what will someone do in any given scenario? And is that what the founders would expect them to do in that given time, or the sales manager or the leader or whoever it is, you know, that everyone needs to be operating with the same sort of code of conduct from a doing business standpoint. And that's, that's what we quickly realized is the background and having been a recruiter before, like my, my whole methodology as a recruiter is you pick somebody who's worked in companies that are from the same market category as the vendor that you're trying to place somewhere with. And, their experience and whether they were a lot of the time that's not actually that great an indicator um someone someone could be very good at picking the right companies to join and those companies could have been fantastically successful sort of the time that they're there doesn't necessarily give you an indication of what that person's going to do when the, the pressure is on and whether they were the person that generated that business or whether it was handed to them or whether they inherited a great patch or whatever and challenge with hiring salespeople is that they're they're quite good at convincing you of things um otherwise they wouldn't be there so i think the way that we've managed to to hire people is again be, be a pragmatist not a perfectionist don't look at someone's cv and say all right well i want someone from this kind of company and this kind of company this kind of company we've hired people that have done all sorts of sorts of things and we look for an underdog mentality Right. We want someone who's going to come in with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, something to prove. They're unlikely to be joining us from like a blue chip technology vendor. Um, we're unlikely to be able to pay the same amount of money as those kind of companies. We're unlikely to be able to offer the same environment that people have and all the stuff that you get with working at somewhere like that. Um, but what our people need to do in order to win 
requires a very different type of culture and mindset to be able to do that. So for us, it's it's seeking that sort of competitive underdog sort of spirit. Um, fundamentally, is very similar to you know where we come from as founders. So um, you know that's not minding where people come from as a background and focusing on the key characteristics will give you a much bigger pool of people to go and to go and speak to. Okay. Okay. So the, the kind of the common message, um, I guess, is to find people who can adapt to um, your way of building a team and building a business and can be resilient enough to, you know, to go through a period of transition. Um, so obviously, there's a lot of people at the moment with a lot of concerns um, around should we hire, should we grow, should we pull back and should we wait to see what happens with the market. There's a lot of sales individuals at the moment who are um anxious to say the least around you know are people even buying technology um and what would you say i mean obviously brian i'm conscious of your time here so we'll wrap up with this with this final question um what would your comments be to that you know would you would you say to the to the sales professionals who are anxious that there is always a market to sell technology you know you just have to now you know be more resilient you have to be more um well-rounded you have to be better knowledge in in certain areas and and do probably 25 percent more or 50 percent more than what you did the year before the year before that you know what, what would your comments be there well you know i think the um i've had the opportunity to sell post 9-11 and the dot-com crisis I, I have had the opportunity to sell post the financial crisis and, and meltdown in the housing market and the things in the ripple through that effect um, been through obviously layoffs during those periods of times. I've been through kind of explosive growth periods of times that followed those. Um, the, you know, a Microsoft executive at the time I was there, um, when Microsoft had their first layoff, which was after the financial crisis had said, you know, during the tougher times, you know, being close to building the product or selling the product are, are where you want to be, you know, ultimately, you know, you always are going to have a need to build the products that support your customers. You're always going to have a need for the salespeople to work with the customers to, to support them in that process. Um, I do think during tougher times, you know, those fundamentals that, uh, you know, the good selling, you know, and good process and good discipline is it's, if you think of it like a sport from that standpoint, ever more important to do the things that you know you should be doing correctly, whether it's how you manage that process and being tight about doing that. I think good organizations always do that, but it's a little bit of a reminder, you know, during tougher times that, uh, that, you know, there are a lot of discipline that comes around that. Um, and I think there will be lots of opportunities that comes out of that. I do think, you know, the, the strong will differentiate, you know, during really good times, everybody looks like they're, they're doing quite well. I think during tougher times, the, the people that really do work a little harder, work a little smarter, work a little better discipline, work a better activity, make more progress are going to differentiate themselves in a meaningful way. Um, and that's, you know, coaches, leaders, players uh, kind of across the recruiters you know partners like i mean i think everybody differentiates themselves during tougher times um in a little bit more meaningful way um and and not that during when times are good that everybody is uh you know gets you know gets complacent and gets you know kind of thing it just it's a reminder um which is sometimes unpleasant but certainly i think in the long run it is good for for us as as an industry
Yeah, I mean, my motto is always that complacency is the enemy. And especially in a sales environment, you know, if you're complacent for 25% of your day, you know, you're going to fall somewhere short of 75% away from your target. Um, and Luke, what, what's your kind of take? Obviously, you know, again, you, you see a lot of sales um, from different companies doing different things. Um, what's your kind of take on, I know, obviously, perhaps we're not as long in the tooth as Mr. Lake in terms of having seen those, those events um, as they happen. Um, but what, what's your kind of opinion on how to approach this year and what a lot of people are expecting to be difficult a lot of salespeople with anxiety around can i hit my numbers you know what, what what's your kind of thoughts yeah i might, might might not be as long in the tooth but i just look at it i think um yeah i think on both sides if you look at the two ends of the supply chain that that we work in you've got vendors manufacturers at one end and then the end user the consumer at the other and i think both both ends are going through that same sort of process of looking at what are the nice to haves and what are the needs to have uh, i think what we've seen with on the vendor side of things over the last five years is that there's been lots of money floating around lots of vc money has been invested into into organizations and the valuation of the company tends to be an indicator of whether it's going to be successful which i think now has caused organizations to look at okay well there was 10 things we could have done. We had the money to go and do nine of them. Now, what are the four or five really most important things that we need to do and the different teams that were corresponding to those additional ones are the ones that are you know, facing the, the layoffs and ultimately it's people, vendors consolidating into the things that they know that work best, like Brian says, that, that process and optimizing their business because now they have to, and before they didn't, they could afford to you know, take that risk to, to to go explore and experiment a little bit more with that money um and a similar sort of thing we're, we're seeing at end customers there is many thousands of tools that they can choose to buy and there's many hundreds of projects that they could run and there's dozens and dozens of different things that you know are priorities for people inside an enterprise from a technology standpoint they're going through the same activity they're they're looking at what is going to generate the biggest return? What are the things that are absolutely critical? What are the things that we really need to solve that are going to continue to support our customers in the world? And different products are getting either prioritized or not based upon that criteria. So what we're seeing is that those vendor clients who have got a very strong value proposition in a problem area, which is still a high priority, are growing, right? They are they are hiring, they are being successful, they are overachieving their numbers. Now, what we're also seeing is that technologies who are maybe getting by or solve a problem which is more of a nice to have, like there's no truly nice to have problem, but you know, something which isn't absolutely business critical, they're the ones that the margins are going to start drifting between overachievement, underachievement, and, and growth and stagnation so i would say to, to those salespeople out there that there are companies that are going to continue to grow there are companies that are being successful in this market um, because ultimately their product and, and what they do is is still very relevant and solving a very big problem so um, i think as salespeople, you've just got to be good at qualifying those opportunities and where you go yeah and, and i think really it, 
the people that will stand out now are the people who are the most learned in in their craft the people who have the most ability to win friends and influence people or the ability to you know to read a situation and, and how to approach it to sell if they're in that you know nice to have bracket perhaps you know what actually might make the difference there is is their ability you know that they can actually influence they can't influence market conditions of course but they can influence how good a salesperson they are and how educated they are on the product and the problem um so i think yeah you know again both kind of similar rhetoric in terms of um not being complacent and identifying areas of complacency in your own working patterns perhaps um sharpening your saw um sword saw sword both maybe need to be sharp um and i suppose understanding the market and how to how to just make it happen because I, I think there's going to be more changes yet to come i'm seeing the vc communities that that i talk to uh, some of which have been on on this podcast with me um so they're still willing to lend money you know they still have money to lend um you know they'd, they'd rather put it into a tech startup than in the banks with the interest rates that they are so um you know they are still out there but again for the for the right technologies um so it's going to be an interesting few months and i think you know we'll wrap it up there because i know we've waffled on for a long time now and I could probably talk to you both for another couple of hours um but look I want to I'll thank you both very much for your time I, I think um you know I'd like to probably do a version two of this and go into more detail on some specific topics around you know scaling up organizations which you both have experience of um so perhaps we can put that one into the into the future podcast uh, category and, and get that one ticked off sounds great well thank you very much for having me Right. Yeah, it's my so. pleasure, and I've been very conscious of how shiny my head is. It's, it looks like a bowling lane, so I'm going to go and sign off and and try and uh, you know get a hound. I think so. Oh, yeah. Chaps, well, go enjoy the rest of your day. We're all on different time zones, so Brian, enjoy the rest of your day. I think it's morning where you are, Luke. It's probably afternoon now, early afternoon, yeah. and for me, it's seven o'clock, and the wife is calling me for dinner. So um, I'm going to love you and leave you, chaps. Thanks again for your time. Thanks, guys. Good speaking. Yes. Bye. Bye.